And uh, we're going to continue in our study, uh, in our series called Storyline. And we're going to really jump back in. And because we're jumping back in and we took a week break, I want us to do a little bit of review. Okay, class? So let's uh, participate and, and do a quick raised hand. That way I can know where to look for an answer here. Okay, here's our first question. We've said this often. It's important for us to understand the big story of the Bible so that we can what? In your own words, why is it important for us to understand the big overarching story of the Bible? Why are we trying to understand the big overarching story of the Bible? In your own words, it doesn't have to be word perfect, but why are we covering these big themes that cross the whole Bible? We understand the big story so we can understand the little stories. How many of you didn't actually knew that, but you were afraid to say it? Okay. All right, question number two. How much of the Old Testament did Jesus believe was fulfilled in him and his gospel? Give me a hand. Give me a hand. All of it. All right. Number three, uh, the best way to understand the Bible's outline is to understand the Bible's developing story in terms of what, there's a word there. It's a word that starts with C. The best way to understand the Bible's developing story or its outline is in terms of its, there's seven of them. Covenant, good job, Rick. All right, number four. In what way, there's four correct answers. So in what way is the Old Testament understanding of the temple fulfilled in the New Testament? There are four things that the New Testament identifies as a new temple. Four different things that are really the fulfillment of the Old Testament picture of the temple. Think of the different things that Paul or the New Testament writers say is the temple. The individual Christian, good. And if the individual Christian is a temple, what else is a temple as a collective? Louder, please. I'm I'm six rows back because we all choose to sit so far back. So you're going to have to speak up. Church, all right, good. So Christian church, what else is the temple? No. Let's get someone else. What else is the temple? It is the person that the temple really was pointing to, an individual person. Jesus Christ, that's right. It's where heaven and earth met, and Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. And then we want to think towards the book of Revelation, what the fulfillment of the temple was. The new, the new, not temple, there is no physical temple in the end times. The new starts with a J. It's an old city's name. The new Jerusalem. That's right. Here's the last question. The Abrahamic covenant. Remember we talked about in our lesson on covenant? There were three things God promised Abraham. We've talked about this several times. Can anyone name one of those three things? Give me one. No, that would be Adam. Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Starts with an A too, so I get it. Land, right? Go figure, right? All right, now land, what else? Seed, yes, children. And then the last one starts with a B. Land, seed, 
Blessing. Good job, Faith. Good, 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 good. Land, seed, blessing. Today, we're going to talk about one of those promises, land. In our covenant lesson, part two, we talked about the seed, how the fulfillment of the seed that God promised Abraham was those who would believe in Christ and be part of Christ's family. Galatians, I think it's three, is very specific that the fulfillment of Genesis 12, when he says, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, is how Jesus Christ would bring his gospel to all the nations. So that's the fulfillment of the seed idea. We know the blessing is salvation, but then we have to understand, okay, what is this land talking about in the Old Testament, right? And so we're gonna cover what actually probably is a more debated thing of how this land promise shows up in the New Testament. And what we're going to do is, in this first part, we're going to really try and get our mind around what the Old Testament was getting at with this land promise. I think where we get off track as Christians is that we think that the land promise is just this arbitrary thing that shows up in Genesis 12, and it's just, it's just land. That's all God's after in the land. He just wants this piece of land. But when we read Genesis 12 in its context— and we read the other promises about the land, we understand there's something much bigger on the horizon. Even if you're just reading the Old Testament as a Jewish person, you should be seeing that there's something bigger on the horizon that the land is pointing to. And then next week, we're going to see how Christ and his gospel modify this land promise. And it's the same for everything else, right? Christ modified the sacrificial system, did he not? He modified the temple. He modified the idea of kingship. And we expect him to do the same to some degree with this land promise. So let's talk firstly about the origin of the promise of land. The origin of the promise of land. Here's number one. What we need to understand is that the land of Israel was a recapturing of the lost land of Eden. Now, if you get anything out of my teaching as a pastor or this series I hope you get this. The sequence of your Bible matters. Context matters. Context flavors how we understand anything in the scriptures, especially a, a huge promise like Genesis 12. And, and we understand that Genesis 12 happens after what? Genesis what? 11. And 10 and 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. The book of Genesis is one story with several sections that are leading to each other. If you read it in one big stretch, you'll see that so clearly. So we want to understand that this land, seed, and blessing are picking up themes that have been present since Genesis 1. And we'll see some of that here in a minute. Here's, here's a couple of reasons why, we think that, why I, th I think this is true in a biblical way to think about this. The word for land in Genesis 12 is the same Hebrew word that's translated earth in Genesis 1 and 2. So in, in our English minds, we may think there's a disconnect, but as Moses is writing, he's using the vocabulary that's available to him. He wants us to see a connection between the land and the earth, right? And then if you remember the last couple lessons when we talked about temple, Remember how we talked about that in the scripture, there always seems to be this idea of a sanctuary that's broader and narrows down to a more individual, holiest sanctuary, right? We talked about how there was the earth, Eden, and then the garden. There was the camp of Israel, 
the tabernacle, and then what was the innermost part of the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies, right? There was Israel, the temple, the Holy of Holies, right? And so this idea of the land being a sanctuary is nothing new. It's been in Genesis all throughout uh, the, the scripture from Genesis 1 through 12. We also know, and you can look this up later, that if you read Genesis 2.14 and Genesis 15.18, the land of Israel shares geographical markers with the Garden of Eden. For instance, both Genesis 2.14 and Genesis 15.18 use as a geographical marker for the Garden and for the land of Israel the Euphrates River. And then in Genesis 2.14, there's some rivers there that people don't know what they are. Two of them, we don't know what exactly Moses is talking about. Then what I want you to understand is that the Bible seems to view Israel as a land, as a new Eden, a new Eden. Look at Ezekiel 36.35 on the screen. And they shall say, this land that was desolate is become like what? Read it with me, y'all. It's become like the Garden of Eden. This is a a prophecy about the restored land of Israel. And and it's talking about that when this land is restored, the the outsiders shall say, this is like the Garden of Eden. The waste in the desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. So what I want you to understand, to properly understand this land promise in the Old Testament, this is so key. Land did not become significant to God in Genesis 12. Land was theologically significant from Genesis 1. And so we need to understand Genesis 12 in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Abraham's hope of possessing a land arose out of the concept of restoring to God's people the original state from which Adam had fallen. Adam was driven out of the land, and God, through his grace, was calling Abraham to bring people back to the land. Okay? And then all this anticipates the last chapters of the Bible, which we'll get to next week. Here's number two. The land and the Abrahamic covenant were a way of God reversing the curse upon the nations in Genesis 10 through 11, okay? So what are the promises given to Abraham? Land, seed, and blessing. What does he say will happen? As God blesses Abraham, Abraham will bless what? I'll bless the nations, right? Well, it's not by coincidence that in Genesis 10, we have what's called the table of nations. It's a genealogy showing all of where the origins of all of the nations of the earth is in Genesis 10. And then we read in Genesis 11, uh, another genealogy at the end. And then the first half, we read the Tower of Babel. What's the story about the Tower of Babel? It's all the nations of the earth coming together to make themselves like God. They wanted to make their name great in a way that was different from God's plan, rather than spreading God's great name throughout the earth, they wanted to come together and make themselves great by building a tower up to the heavens. So all of the nations were coming together to replace God and his glory. And what did God do in response to that? God cursed them, God confused their languages, and God scattered them throughout the earth. 
But God did not want to leave these nations in a state of being cursed. And so what does God do? He calls a nation to bless the nations that were cursed. He makes the name of one man great so that through his greatness or through Jesus Christ, eventually he could then bless all of the nations that had been dispersed in Genesis 11. And really Acts chapter two with the uh, idea of Pentecost is really how God starts to regather the nations back through Jesus Christ, okay? Look at, look at Genesis 12. It gives us this idea. This is how I'd like to word it, that, that Genesis 12 is God's counterstrike against mankind's sins. In the same way Genesis 3.15, where the serpent or the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent is a counterstrike against man's sin. Genesis 12, one through three, is a counterstrike against the consequences of man's sin. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said unto Abraham, get thee out of that country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Hold on. Where was Abram? He wasn't in Canaan. He was in the scattered nations. So God, by his grace, is taking a man who is under the curse of sin, bringing him back to his land, look, and, and get thee from thy father's house to the land I'll show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I'll bless thee and make thy name great, not for that end, but so that thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So this Abrahamic covenant, as we talked about in our covenant lesson, is a means of God restoring fellowship with a fallen, sinful world. Are we on the same page? Does this make sense? Okay. Let's talk about the purpose of the land. The purpose of the land. The, the land was a beginning of a far larger inheritance. What I want to show you from just the book of Genesis is that God's plan for Abram was not simply to conquer a rectangle in the Middle East. God had much bigger plans. The land of Israel was just the beginning of what God wanted to do through his people and eventually through Christ. Now remember, we talked about what the fulfillment of the seed is, right? Galatians 3 verses 7 through 9 make it very clear that the seed of Abraham eventually through Christ is a global seed. It is no longer a nation, but the nations are now the seed of Abraham. That Galatians 3, 7 through 9 is very explicit that the way that Abraham blesses the nations is by all the nations being saved through the name of Jesus Christ. So we see the seed idea that was really limited to one nation that is now made global. And what we're going to see in Genesis is that God is already throwing out foreshadowing that this localized land had a global future. Okay, look at Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18. What does God say to Abraham? He repeats a lot of the covenant. Listen to this, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I'll multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is upon the seashore. Remember these, these words when we get to uh, 1 Kings here in a minute. Now look, look, listen to this next phrase. This is talking about the land. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Where is the gate located in ancient cities? The, the entrance to the city, the wall. 
You can't possess the gate of your enemies by staying in one piece of land, right? How do you possess the gate of the city of Babylon? You go conquer Babylon. You possess it. It's yours, right? Gates don't move unless you're Samson, right? You got to go and conquer that land. And so what is God saying here? He's saying, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a global seed, right? And we'll talk about this in a minute. But then he says, I'm going to give you a global inheritance. I want you not just to possess this land, but I intend for you to possess all of the lands of your enemies. I want you to possess even all of the earth because he says, in that way, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And if you remember Psalm 2, Psalm 2 that we read two weeks ago calls back to this because God says to the Israelite king, what does he say? Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. What is God saying? He's saying to the king, if, if you would just ask of me, if you would have just obeyed me, you could have conquered the whole earth. That was my plan. That was my intention, right? Here's the, the next idea. Okay, I missed a blank. I don't know if this is on your handout. But the land was tied together with the promise of creation rest. Is that on your handout? I don't know if it is but it's good nonetheless, okay? What, is, what do we always see in the Bible? That when Israel conquers the land and conquers their enemy, God has a very significant word where he says God gave them rest from their enemies. Some of y'all who've been listening in our Genesis series, when does that idea of rest first show up? Who's the first person to achieve rest? God, right? And we talked about it in that sermon, that that seventh day, interestingly, has no end, right? All the other six days say day and night, right? The seventh day doesn't have those markers because God is stating that he wants to achieve an eternal rest for his people. And so what Exodus and Joshua and all these books are saying, when Israel conquers the land, that they were moving towards that promise of rest that God was gonna give his people. Then if you read Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 verses eight through nine, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, references Joshua inheriting the land of rest and says, if, jo if that was all I meant to give my people, why on earth would I have sent Jesus Christ? So this, this rest idea that the land represented was also pointing forward to something greater and something bigger than just a patch of land. Here's your next thought, that the land was tied with the worship of God in the temple sanctuary. What made the land of Israel special? It, it's not arbitrary. What made the land of Israel special was that God dwelt there. God dwelt there in his sanctuary. Exodus 15, 17 says this. This is the song of Moses written after the Red Sea crossing as they are heading towards the land of Israel. And Moses pens this. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. Hey, hold on. Doesn't that remind us of Eden as well? Right? Doesn't that remind us of Eden as well? In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. He's not talking about a temple. He's talking about the mountain of thine inheritance. He's talking about Zion. He's talking about Israel. So Israel was significant because it was the place in which God would be worshiped by his people in which God's plan was for all of the nations of the earth to come and to worship God's uh, glory and to worship the God of the Israelites who had conquered all of the nations. 
We know in Exodus 19.6 that God called the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. In that in the broader sanctuary of the land of Israel, just as the Levites were to do in the micro sanctuary of the tabernacle, they were supposed to mediate God's glory. They were supposed to display God's glory for the rest of the nations to see in their lives the glory of their God. Okay? So this is the purpose of the land, the origin of the land. Here's the question. Okay? Did Israel inherit this land? Did Israel possess the land? And at this point is where there's two significant opinions, okay? There would, uh, what I'm gonna show you, I think is utterly clear in the scripture, is that Israel did possess the land. They possessed it, they lost it, they possessed it again, they lost it, and they possessed it again. And then they lost it. <laughs> there's another viewpoint that says Israel never achieved the land promise. And the reason I wanna teach you this is this is significant, and I'll get to this more next week. My purpose for this series is, is not an ax to grind, my purpose is that I want you as a Christian to know how to read the Old Testament, okay? So if, if we take the viewpoint that Israel never achieved the land and therefore God has this like separate plan for national Israel, even if they're unbelievers, and they're gonna inherit this land still, number one, we have no way as Christians to be edified by large sections of the Old Testament. They don't mean anything to us. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't mean anything to us. Joshua doesn't mean anything to us, right? And we know that Jesus is saying all the scriptures fulfilled in me. And then it, it significantly affects how we interpret things in Revelation. If, I mean, Revelation is a confusing book as it is. I'm trying to help you be prepared to make it a little more clear in your mind. And, and so we have to answer the question because that's where the hinge is. Did Israel possess the land or did they not? Okay. What I want to show you is what the scripture says, because it doesn't really matter what Mike thinks. Let's look at what the Bible says. Okay, here's what we know, that the book of Joshua presents the land of Israel as being fully inherited, possessed, and conquered. It shows this in two different places in the book of Joshua. <clears throat> I want you to see how God, God words this. This is in chapter 11. This is only halfway through the book. So Joshua took what? The whole land. According to what? All that the Lord said to Moses. What, what did the Lord say to Moses? Well, he told Moses what he's going to possess. Deuteronomy 1.7, uh, Deuteronomy 11.24. God gives Moses the geographical borders of the land. And, and, and here's what, what Joshua is recording, that he took the whole land according to all that the Lord said to Moses. And Joshua gave it, the whole land, Right? For an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. Now, Joshua apparently says, I need to tell you this again. So, in chapter 21, verses 43, what does he say? And the Lord gave unto Israel all, all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers. Now, this is interesting because this is no longer just talking about Moses, it's talking about Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all those dudes. So now, now Joshua's saying, not only did I conquer what God said to Moses, I conquered everything that God said to the forefathers of Israel. So if we're reading Joshua, oh wait, there's one more verse. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he swear unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. And the Lord delivered all of their enemies in their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel 
all came to pass. Hey, listen, I'm not a Bible scholar. You all know that. Preaching for you for two years. I'm just saying, it sounds like they got all the land. Right? I mean, but it's not just Joshua who had said about this. Here's the next truth. David also fully subdued the land of Israel before Solomon became king. And I'm not going to go to the scripture reference because we got a lot to cover, but you can look up 1 Chronicles 22, 17 through 18. But what's more interesting to me is what it says when Solomon was king, because it uses several phrases that we're familiar with. We also know this, that Solomon achieved several of the Abrahamic promises in a temporal sense. Listen to 1 Kings 4. If you've read Genesis 12 one time in your life, you're going to know what this is talking about. Judah and Israel, this is in the reign of Solomon, were many as the sand which is by the sea. Now, who was God talking to when he starts talking about sand by the sea? Abraham, right? Eating and drinking, making merry. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. If you read Genesis 15, 18, which is where the borders of the land of Israel are first named, that language is directly quoted from Genesis 15. So the writer of Kings, I don't know if it's Ezra or who else, they're saying this dude got what Abraham was promised. If he's quoting Genesis 15, he's trying to get us to see that, right? And then it, see, it shows us how all the nations of the earth are coming to Israel to recognize the greatness of Abraham's seed, right? They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life and talks about Solomon's wealth and oxen and all this stuff. For he had dominion. Doesn't this sound like Adam? Adam was supposed to have dominion over all the earth from this side of the river, from Tipsa, even to Aza, over all all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace, this is rest, right, on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. What's interesting to me about this one is that it is showing us two things simultaneously. My pages are mixed. It's showing us that number one, Israel inherited the land God promised Abraham for the third time. <laughs> number two, Israel became the sand by the seashore to some degree to which God promised Abraham. But it's also showing us that that wasn't the end all be all of God's plan because biblical history doesn't stop at 1 Kings 4, does it? Fact, if you read just a few verses down, 1 Kings 4 kind of shows the cards because immediately after all of this blessing and fulfillment of promises, it says that Solomon multiplied to himself horses and chariots and wives to show us that he was not the great king that God was looking forward to because he is directly violating Deuteronomy 17. And there awaits another better king who would achieve these promises. So did Israel possess the land? Sounds like to me. I mean, you can make your own decision. I'm not telling you what to believe, but I'm just saying it kind of sounds like they did to me. Here's a fourth point. I'm not going to go into this, but you, you have all the scripture references so you can look it up yourself. Those who would say Israel didn't possess the land would have two arguments for that. 
Um, number one, they would say that when, when you read Joshua, it, it does say at the end of Joshua that there were, there were enemies, right? Which is, I think, a fair argument, but you also have to say, like, it's pretty, it's pretty clear, like, all the land rest from all their enemies. So we have to reconcile the two. And I think our salvation is a really great picture of this because are we saved when we accept Christ? But we're not fully delivered to heaven, are we? We still have enemies. We still have a battle in this life. And I think that really that picture of of achieved land and yet still enemies is a picture that points forward to our salvation, not to, as some preachers used to say when I heard people preach on Joshua, that that Canaan was a, what was it? The, the, the blessed Christian life, right? It, that, that, no, no, Canaan's talking about our salvation, our inheritance, our heavenly inheritance, and yet there's still enemies on this side of heaven. So that's the, the first argument. The second is that, um, again, if they would say, if you look at Genesis 15 and you draw like the rectangle God was drawing there, they would argue that Israel never conquered all of that rectangle. And so therefore, because God said this is a promise that I'm going to give to you, God doesn't go back on his promises, right? And so God still has a plan for Israel. To me, the thing that's not persuasive about that, and again, you can make up your mind for yourself, is that the, land, the borders of the land of Israel aren't actually consistently defined. That's your blank. They're not consistently defined. If you read all of those references, they have different geographical markers. And here's how I would word my 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 understanding of what God is trying to communicate through that. That the ambiguity regarding the borders of the land provides clues that the land promise cannot be reduced merely to a piece of land, but rather that it hints at a more ideal land that will be far greater and that this promise will not be fulfilled until Abraham's seed fills and occupies the whole world. So did Israel conquer the land? I think so. I think the Bible's clear. I don't know how else you deal with those passages in Chronicles, Kings, and Joshua. But there's a second, in every lesson that we've had, and make sure you're in Ezekiel 47, every lesson that we've had, it's probably been pretty predictable by now. That's why we're, we're rolling, we're winding down the series, okay? We got like two or three more lessons. Every lesson has followed the same progression, haven't they? Because our Bible is one big story. And so every lesson we've started in what book of the Bible? Thank you, but come on, y'all. Y'all know the answer. What book of the Bible we started in every single lesson? The book of Genesis, right? Thank you, Robert. Teacher's pet. (laughs) Right? We started in Genesis. We often go to Joshua in the books of the Kings. And then we often go to the major and the minor prophets. And then the major of the minor prophets are preparing us for what Christ brings. And we go to Christ, and then we see Christ and his fulfillment, and then we see its application to us as Christians. There should be, by the way, a very simple progression in the Bible because the Bible is one big story, right? So we're going to end our lesson this week the same way that we ended the first half of all of our lessons. We're going to go to the prophets. And just like sacrifice, just like temple, just like king, all of the prophets start to look at the continual disappointment that is attached to these promises. And through God's revelation, they start to realize and communicate to God's people that God had bigger plans. They're they're, they're like, no, no, no. God is not giving us a king like Solomon. He's giving us the ancient of days as our king. 
He's not trying to achieve his salvation just through an earthly sacrifice of of a lamb or a goat or a bull. He's trying to have a more perfect sacrifice that'll give us an eternal atonement. And so the prophets, in just the same way, start looking at this inheritance of land while they're in Babylon. That'll get your heart detached from a rectangle of land when God makes your people live in a different land for 70 years. And they start prophesying about the changes that are going to come to this promise of land. So I want us to end there. The prophets begin to speak of the restoration of the land in terms that prepare us for some significant changes. Now, I'm going to make connections when I'm reading this that are evident to me, but they'll be more evident to you if you go home and read Ezekiel 48 and 47 and then go read Revelation 20, 21, and 22. You will see so many verbal connections. So when we read Ezekiel 47, 48, as as Christians, if we are Christians and not just Jews that don't believe in Jesus, we ought to read Ezekiel 47, 48 in light of what we read in Revelation 21, 22. Because the language is utterly the same. I mean, it's so similar. So there are going to be things that we're tempted to read literally, and then we recognize in Revelation that they were pointing us to something bigger than the land. So at first glance, Ezekiel 47 through 48 seemed to be prophesying to Israel that they were going to get the land back after Babylonian captivity. And we know to a sense they did. But when we start reading, we recognize that not all this stuff happened. And so Ezekiel is laying out a plan that when Israel is going to get the land, he says, this is what life is going to be like. So he says, when you get the land, this is life. And when we recognize that that wasn't life, we recognize that God wasn't giving them just that land. He had something bigger in mind. Look at chapter 47 and verse number 12. This is going to sound a lot like Eden, but God is talking about the land. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat. That's Genesis 2.14, I believe. Whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months. Now, hold on one second. Is there a psalm that many of us have memorized that sounds similar to this? His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. By the way, if you want to read Psalm 1 a little bit more richly, Psalm 1 is pointing us to heavenly blessings, right? That's what verse 12 talks about. But then also... This is, uh, I think, Genesis 2, 10 through 13, describes this very reality. Because their waters, they issued out of the sanctuary. Because in Genesis 2, it talks about how the four rivers flowed from the Garden of Eden to water the rest of the earth. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. That reminds me in Revelation 21, that there would be the trees that were for the healing of the nations in the New Jerusalem. Drop down to verse number 13. God now is laying out the borders of the land. Thus saith the Lord God, this shall be the border, whereby ye shall inherit the land according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in verses like 13 through 20, 
Um, I, I probably should have attached a picture, but what God does, you all have seen maps of ancient Israel and how you know the small tribes got little, little circles and the big tribes got the big squares, right? What is laid out in verses 13 through 20 is God is redivvying up the land and he's dividing it in equal portions. Now that makes no sense in a human sense, right? Because these, some of these tribes are huge, like 10 times the size of another tribe. And, and yet Ezekiel, in a picturesque way, is saying that the, the land of Israel, that, that strip, right, that you know, is going to be divided in like pizza slices, like little, not pizza slices, little rectangles. Doot, 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 doot. And so what is, what is 13 through 20 communicating? Is it telling us the physical borders that each of the tribes will have? Or is it communicating in a symbolic way a bigger idea that in the new land, everybody will have the same inheritance? You decide for yourself. But I think the answer is obvious. Look at verse number 22 of chapter 47. And it shall come to pass that, this is interesting, that ye shall divide it by lot for an inheritance unto you and to who? The strangers. Now, if you read Leviticus, I just finished reading Leviticus, studying Leviticus in my personal reading. Foreigners were not supposed to have the land. And so what, what verse number 22 is saying is that the foreigners would now have the same claim on the promises as national Israel did. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Galatians 3 to me. That God is reconstituting his people, not just by bounds of ethnicity. For in the eyes of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, nor slave or free, right? And that's what verse 22 is pointing us to. And then look at chapter 48, verse 35. This sounds like the new Jerusalem if you read Revelation 21. This is the last verse of Ezekiel. It's meant to leave us hanging. But it talks about the city. And what's interesting is that um, there's several things that are interesting, but verse number 30 uh, starts saying that this new city, the new Zion, would be, it tells us the measurement, and the measurement is a cube. There's only two other things that are measured and have perfectly cubic measurements in the Bible. Previously, it's the Holy of Holies. In the future, it's the New Jerusalem, right? And then look at verse number 31 through 33. It talks about how this city will have 12 gates, and on the names of the 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. You want to know where else that shows up? The New Jerusalem. But then the New Jerusalem adds this, that in the foundation, there will be 12 stones that represent the 12 apostles reconstituting a new Israel, right? And then it ends this way in verse number 35. And it was round about, circumference, 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. And it's almost that exact same language that John uses to describe the new Jerusalem, where he says that the Lord, there will be no temple in it for the Lord is there and we shall see his face. This fellowship in the land where everyone will have a equal opportunity of inheritance, where there will no longer be a division between the ethnic Israel and the foreigners and who can have a slice of the land and where the Lord's presence will be manifest. The Old Testament itself seems to point us to something 
bigger, something more glorious, something more beautiful, and Christian, something I believe that you and I have a claim to through Christ Jesus, who was the perfect, obedient son of Abraham, who achieved what God was trying to do throughout all of the Old Testament. So we'll continue next week as we discuss how Christ fulfills and modifies this land promise.